Reacting to the world's best science, the Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with Ben Fowler and Helen Scales, and we'll begin with a look at some of this week's top science news stories. Researchers in Seattle and Washington have solved an enormous jigsaw puzzle to design two novel proteins that bind to a protein found in influenza viruses. And this proves that computer-designed proteins are feasible and could form the basis of new drugs and new biosensors. They report the work in the journal Science this week. Protein-protein interactions are a common biochemical process. They're important in a great many biological systems, and they're controlled by the molecular structure. For two proteins to bind together, they need complementary shapes that fit together a bit like a lock and key, with no overlap and very little empty space. Sarah Fleischmann at the University of Washington, along with colleagues in California, has used cutting-edge software and over 100,000 hours of powerful parallel computing time to design new proteins that would bind to the tail of a common virus protein called hemagglutinin, and they in particular looked at the 1918 H1N1 flu strain. Now, this protein itself helps the viruses to invade cells, and it's found in many, many strains of influenza. Most natural antibodies that help us to fight it off bind to the head region of the protein. But the head is very variable, which leaves room for the virus to evolve immunity. The tail, however, is highly conserved across different strains, which makes it an excellent target for attack. To design the protein, they first identified hot spots of interaction on the virus protein itself. Now, these areas where hydrogen bonding or electrostatic interactions will allow for low-energy bonding of complementary structures, so these structures will essentially just fall together. Now, using a map of these hotspots, they set about putting together the jigsaw pieces and designing a structure that would complement and therefore bind to the hotspots of the protein. Candidate proteins were then tested using a highly efficient yeast-based assay, and two of the designed proteins, called HB36 and HB80, were shown to bind well with the 1918 H1N1, as well as other strains of H1N1 and H5N1. One of the proteins, HB80, actually inhibited an important protein change which is used to get into our cells. And that's really important in infection, so that's a good sign that not only does it bind, but it also actually changes the way the protein works. Now, this is by no means perfect, and there's many, many hurdles to cross before designed novel proteins will become useful medications, not least the fact that putting a new protein into, say, our body is going to get an immune response. But this is an excellent example of successful computer-aided protein design, and this is a technique that could be instrumental in future diagnostics and in future treatment. Certainly sounds very exciting. And uh, yes, the, the bringing together of computers and proteins, brilliant. We'll see what happens there. Well, I'm going to go from microscopic proteins to an awesome story about the biggest fish um, in the oceans with the news that scientists in Mexico have discovered that the largest mass gathering of whale sharks in the world is to be found right there in Mexico. Well, these gentle giants can grow up to 12 metres or 40 feet in length 
And that means that spotting just one of them as they cruise through the oceans is an unforgettable experience. And yes, I can vouch for that. They are wonderful creatures to swim with. So imagine what it must be like to spot a gang of more than 400 whale sharks. Well, that's what a team of researchers from Mexico and the US did back in the summer of 2006. And they spotted a huge aggregation site, which they've called Afuera, from a plane. They were flying off the coast of the Yucatan Peninsula in the Caribbean Sea. And since then, they've been back each year to carry out studies from the air and in the water to try and figure out what's going on. And in 2006, they spotted the largest aggregation of whale sharks that's ever been seen, of 420 sharks in an area covering just 12 square kilometres. It just sounds unbelievable. (laughs) I mean, really wonderful. Do have a look at the paper, actually. This is a, it's in the journal PLOS One, and it's an open access paper. You can have a look. And there's photographs of these whale sharks from the air, and they look like ants. It's amazing. There's sort of a swarm of ants. There's just so many of them. Um, but the big question is, why do they do it? What are the, what are the whale sharks up to? What's, what's the big deal? Well, when any um, animals group together like this in, in huge groups, there's only really two possible explanations, sex or food. And in the case of whale sharks at Afuera and elsewhere, actually, where smaller aggregations have been seen, it turns out to be the latter. It's about food. Um, and I've seen whale sharks in Ningaloo Reef in Western Australia, and they gather there because the coral reefs undergo a mass spawning. All the corals spawn at once, uh, and that sort of triggers this great big explosion in the food web, which the whale sharks come and, and partake in. And that's actually what's happening here in Mexico as well. Um, the team went out and sieved the sea for plankton and found it was awash with fish eggs. And then they used a fantastic technique, DNA barcoding, to figure out what kind of fish these were. And it turned out to be a type of tuna called the little tunny. And they're packed full of fats. It makes it fantastic whale shark food. Um, and it's thought that the reason the tuna show up in this particular spot off Mexico is because there's an upwelling along the coast which injects a pulse of nutrients into the ecosystem. So it's all all really wonderful, lots of stuff going on there. And there's already another smaller whale shark aggregation close to this Afuero one, this new one, that's been known about for a couple of years. And that's just been recently protected by the Mexican government. And since it already draws flocks and flocks of tourists who quite understandably want to come and swim with whale sharks, you know, it's a wonderful thing to see. But, But there are concerns with this new site that... There could be problems of interactions between tourists and maybe boats and whale sharks. So the researchers of this paper are calling for swift action to protect these wonderful animals in this great big, extraordinary natural event. So hopefully there'll still be lots there for generations to come. Thank you, Helen. Also in the news this week, a laser technique has exposed the previously unknown molecular shape of epidermal growth factor receptors, or EGFRs, which are known to be involved in the development of cancer. These are found on the surface of the vast majority of human cells, as Dr Marissa Martin-Fernandez, a scientist based at the STFC's Central Laser Facility in Harwell, explained. The role of the receptor is to bind molecules which are in the bloodstream and produce signals which are transduced to the inside of each cell and to give instructions to the cell machinery to grow, divide, die, differentiate. So it's kind of at the core of how to promote cell behavior. These are the orchestrators. This type of receptors orchestrate cells are going to do within a multicellular body and uh, there is a lot that it is known about what happens in this signaling process that leads to cellular growth and when it goes wrong it leads to the growth of tumors. In fact most human tumors have 
assaulting the signaling of this receptor. Current drugs that target EGFRs do so non-discriminately, blocking activation to halt cell growth. However, in doing so, they may block other essential cell maintenance, and this could lead to the body adopting other chemical pathways to achieve the same goal. This sidesteps the cancer treatment and allows the tumour to grow once more. To find out more about the precise interactions between EGFRs and signalling molecules, we need a good understanding of their structure. To do so, Marissa's team use a novel laser technique called fluorescence resonance energy transfer. So what we do is we put a label in a position in the receptor that we can control, which is it's a molecule that emits fluorescence, and we put another label on the cell surface, and then we excite one of the molecule in the in the receptor, depending on how close it is to the surface. The characteristics of the fluorescence emission are different. And from that information, we can actually get nanometer distances. Knowing the distances between the receptor and the other parts of the cell can help to simulate exactly what structure the receptor will take in situ. This job is taken on by experts such as Dr. Martin Wynne at the STFC's Computational Science and Engineering Department at the Darsbury Laboratory. Our starting point are atomic structures that you get from crystallography. These are experiments that would take place on diamond light source, for example, uh, and they give you very detailed atomic structures of the, of the proteins that are involved. The drawback of that is that they're static. They don't move around like they do in real life. Also, that it means that the, the proteins have been taken out of the cell, taken out of their natural context, and put into a, a crystal. So you have very detailed information, but it's not necessarily relevant to what's happening in the cell. So what we would do in a simulation is to take that detailed structure, set up a simulation which mimics the cell environment, uh, and then see what happens when it's put into the cellular context. When Marissa's laser data was combined in a simulation with the known atomic structure of EGFRs, the resulting shape was new, unexpected, but surprisingly similar to a structure found in Drosophila, the fruit fly. So what you often see from crystallography is very symmetric structures. The crystal environment is a very symmetric environment, and everything's nice and, and well-ordered. What we saw when we did our simulation the molecule actually becomes asymmetric. When we first had, uh, did this, this was something that had not been seen before and slightly heretic. People love symmetry. Symmetry is beautiful. So our simulations were showing that the molecule became asymmetric uh, in order to explain Marissa's experiments. And then the, the amazing thing is that when we look at that molecular shape, it looked nearly identical to the molecular shape of the drosophila receptor. And then when we, we identified that shape, it was virtually identical. It was so similar, it was actually uncanny. We were kind of amazed, you know, when we look at the structure that, was, that we identify and it looked like the drosophila receptor, we knew we were onto something. So knowing this particular structure could help lead to better therapeutics and the technique itself could help move forward into personalised medicine. Given this new information, whether we could actually consider new antibody therapeutics that could block one or the other version of the receptor and allow the other signals to be transduced. So in a way it will be less 
invasive therapeutics that might actually reduce side effects and make sure that, for example, the body doesn't, is not deprived of a fundamental function that this receptor covers. I mean, I think we're, and we're at the very, we're, we're at the level of very basic science and it's a long road towards drug development, that's true. But I think one of the things that they want to do is to develop treatments that are specific to patients. So you can analyze the DNA from particular patients to see if they have particular mutations. It might be that you can also analyze the, the tumors of patients to see what the confirmation of the receptors are. And then that might shed light on whether a particular antibody treatment is likely to work or not. That's their interest, is actually in applying this to patient-specific treatments. That was Martin Wynn from the Darsbury Lab and Marissa Martin-Fernandez from the Central Laser Facility in Harwell. You can find that paper in the journal Molecular and Cellular Biology. Now, stem cells may be rejected by the animals that they first came from, according to research published in the journal Nature this week. This could be a huge stumbling block in the use of induced stem cells for therapy. Induced pluripotent stem cells, or IPSCs, are created by taking normal cells from an animal and then exposing them to factors that could allow them to differentiate into any of the body's cells, much like normal embryonic stem cells do. As they are genetically identical to the animal they've been taken from, it's always been assumed that they would not cause an immune response and would therefore avoid rejection. But now Tongbai Chow and colleagues at the University of California, San Diego, have tested that assumption and found that, at least for two of the methods of inducing pluripotency, it simply doesn't hold true. The team took mouse fibroblasts, these are cells that make up the structural components of skin, and they used two different techniques to turn them into iPSCs before transplanting them into genetically identical mice. They did the same thing with embryonic stem cells for comparison. The results were quite startling. The embryonic stem cells were mostly able to grow and divide within the mice, but the induced stem cells triggered an immune attack and so they grew to far smaller sizes, and they showed damage typical of immune rejection. Induced cells transplanted into immune-deficient mice were able to grow and divide in exactly the same way as the embryonic cells, so that shows it's definitely an immune response that's leading to the rejection. Genetic comparisons showed certain genes were overexpressed in the induced compared to embryonic stem cells, and subsequent testing showed that this is most likely to be responsible for inducing what's called a T-cell-mediated immune response. Now, this is something of a stumbling block for induced stem cell therapies, and it shows that we need to ensure that cells created in this way are not just genetically identical to embryonic stem cells, but we also need to account for what are known as epigenetic factors, such as gene expression. Right, so it's not really the end of stem cell therapies. No, no, not at all. It, it's something that we need to think about quite carefully. One of the reasons why we're using... IPSCs, these induced adult cells, is that it gets around any of the ethical considerations of using embryonic cells. But this clearly shows that that process of inducing this pluripotency is something that we need to pay quite a bit more attention to, and it clearly may have an effect on getting these sorts of therapies into actual 
treatments. Absolutely. Well, if you like to read up on anything we've covered this week, the references and the transcripts for each of the news stories we've discussed are online at thenakedscientist.com forward slash news. The Naked Scientist News Flash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.